Let us look back to the portion we've read. And let us turn to the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 37. Let us read again just in verse 3. Although looking at the whole context. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, thou knowest. Want to look at this portion fairly briefly this evening. And as the Lord enables. You see here the prophet Ezekiel raised up by the spirit. And um, set down, as it says in verse 1, raised up and set down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. Set down in the midst of a wide plain that was full of bones. And we want to look at this tonight, first, very, just as follows. The, the valley of dry bones, first of all. Secondly, the evangelism that this dry, dry valley calls for. And thirdly, the evidences of um, renovation that take place when that evangelism is followed in dependence on God's help. These three, three, three matters and in the same and that order. First, then, the valley of dry bones, the vision that is given to Ezekiel. It's an amazing scene. A valley, a wide valley full of bones. Conjures up pictures in the mind of something like what happened in the concentration camps of uh, Nazi Germany. Conjures up in the mind pictures of the genocide and the pictures of awful genocide that emerged from Cambodia at the time of the Khmer Rouge. Notice that the valley is full of a multitude of these dry bones. And they are very dry. Scavengers have done their, their job in the midst of them. And um, they have been bleached by the sun. And it looks outwardly impossible that life could come into these bones again. This is a metaphorical picture that we have here of, um, well, first of all, of Israel. State of Israel, the spiritual state of Israel, like a valley of dry bones. Might be referring to Israel during her time in Babylon. Or it may well be that the prophet was looking, was seeing further ahead, maybe even 
through the time of Christ, when the, that nation cried out, His blood be upon us and on our children. And oh, how that has followed on in the form of anti-Semitism. And yet they have not turned to Christ. They regard, still regard Christ as a bogus Messiah. And anyone coming, becoming converted to Christ in a Jewish home can be sent out of that home, treated as if there was a funeral, as if he was dead. State of spiritual death. Dry bones. Or it can apply, we can apply it. The first, the first application is to Israel. First meaning is to Israel. You see, you see that, the uh, first meaning to Israel. If you look at verse 11, for example, you see there, then he said unto me, the Spirit of the Lord said to Ezekiel, when he looked at, as he put him down in this valley, Son, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. And then you see that evidence that it's the Israel that is being referred to again when you come to the end of the chapter, and the reference to the two sticks, the re reference to the division of the kingdom that took place after the death of Solomon, and um, how you had Judah, and how you had Ephraim. And then Ephraim was carried away by Assyria. Later on, Judah was carried away into Babylon. This reference here to these two sticks, this, these two kingdoms, going to become one kingdom joined together. We believe that applies to Israel. But although the first meaning is of this metaphorical picture is of Israel in its, in its spiritual condition, this is also applicable to the to society in general, and especially in our own day. Anyone who is out of Christ is spiritually dead. And oh, how many there are who know nothing even literally of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, never mind knowing a saving knowledge of him. How much our own country could be described as a valley of dry bones. And how quickly our island, our beloved island, is beginning to fall into that pattern also which has known so much blessing in the past, but is now turning from that blessedness. Well, that is the first thing that we have said before us, this metaphorical picture of a valley of dry bones setting before us the spiritual state, first of Israel, but of, the, of a wider picture than Israel as well. And then secondly, the evangelism that is called, uh, that this picture, that this, this spiritual state calls out for.
And it's an evangelism that places great emphasis upon the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God in is the one who has taken the initiative to provide matter for evangelism. The one who has, and we tried, we, we remembered this yesterday and throughout the weekend, the provision that the Lord has, has made, the initiative that he has taken, all of his own sovereign will. We desire to be found in a lost eternity, but he gave his only begotten son, the darling of his own bosom, and he has stood in the Roman place of his people, and he has brought forth the righteousness that is required for them. And on the basis of that finished work, the Lord has, is sending ministers into the vineyard. He's sending preachers into the sending evangelists into the vineyard to make to set forth the free offer of the gospel to sinners that is provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God, this is, it's the Lord who has taken this, the initiative in this matter. Man has no, man can have no boast in it. Their boast must be entirely and exclusively in the finished work of Christ and the ongoing application of that finished work as he lives now to bestow upon his people what he has died to win for them. Sovereign initiative of God then must be a major feature of the evangelism that's called for. And we can speak of that evangelism further, or Ezekiel is bringing it before us. It must be an evangelism that is this, that is the objective revelation of God's truth and the subjective illumination of God's spirit. Not one of these, but both. Both must be there together and in balance, word and spirit. Notice how that is brought before us again in the picture within the chapter. The prophet commanded to speak to the dead bones. Sounds absurd, but isn't that what the preaching of the gospel is? Preaching to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Commanding them to come alive. Commanded to speak to them. To speak to them the words of God. To speak to them the provision of God. To speak to them the offer. The offer of the gospel, the command, the gracious command of the gospel, commanding them to live. And the amazing thing is that as that is done independent upon the Lord himself, prayerfully dependent upon the Lord himself, accompanying the word, 
these bones begin to come together. Come together, the bone, bone to bone in the right place. Bone corresponding with bone. And then sinews put upon the skeletal form. And then skin put upon them. And they're still not alive. We can have the word, if that is all we have, the word, but without the spirit. Yes, you can have a form of spiritual activity, but not alive. Amazing. It's like a whole, whole lot of skeletons now in this boneyard, in this valley. But then there's the next command that was given to him to preach, to preach to the wind is the way it's put. And the word wind can mean spirit. I'm calling upon the spirit to come and accompany the word. And when that happens, notice the, the prayer that is there. Call upon the four winds to breathe into these skeletal forms. And then these skeletons come alive and they stand up a huge army. As I've said, word and spirit. Objective revelation, very important, but not enough by itself. Must be accompanied with the subjective illumination of the spirit. And that means that there must be prayer accompanying the preached word. It can be easy enough for us who are ministers nowadays with all the commentaries on all that's set before us uh, in the way of computers to find material for sermons. But we must have the prayer for the Spirit to come down and accompany that word. And it's very important also for congregations to realize that. And especially for those who have the ear of the Lord already that they be praying that this minister is able to bring master from heaven itself, not his own words, but what the Lord provides to him by his spirit in the truth to his people so that the Lord will bless it, so that the Lord will open hearts as he opened the heart of Lydia, as he opened the heart of everyone here who has been unable to believe. The emphasis is on the sovereign grace of God, not on the eloquence of the preacher, but entirely 
upon what the Lord is able to do by his spirit accompanying the world. And that these skeletal bones come alive. You're, you're reminded there what happened in Genesis when the Lord created man. He was just he was he was just a, a, a formed from the from the from the lump of clay, from the lump of the earth, until the Lord breathed into his nostrils, until the Lord breathed his own spirit into his soul. And then he became a spiritual person with the image of Christ. That is what we need. And on a Monday of communion, that is the most important thing I think we can bring before ourselves. The importance of prayer, the importance of spirit to accompany Holy Spirit, to accompany his word. The charismatic movement can teach us a little on that, although to, an, to, an, to a large extent they have gone to excess and they have though them put emphasis on the spiritual side. They have gone to the excess of revelations and so on. But it's the two together, word and spirit, that must be there in this evangelism that the Lord will bless. And then thirdly, what will be some of the evidences that the Lord is blessing that sort of evangelism? What will be the evidences that there, that renovation is taking place in our society? That we are being turned from death to life, spiritually speaking. And before I come to that, let me just make one other point. That we shouldn't be marked with pessimism in the face of the apparent spiritual death that uh, covers our nation at this time. There is nothing impossible with God. There have been times in the past that have been as bad as the day that we are in. And yet the Lord has brought the reformation after a time of Middle East, mid, 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 Middle Age uh, darkness. And we should not be caught up with a spirit of pessimism, but uh, with a spirit of expectation as we seek diligently, prayerfully, to have the help of the Spirit in the application of the truth. Some of the evidences of renovation then. The first of these will be Christ-centeredness. Notice in the chapter here, reference being made to my servant David. Well, David was dead and gone by the time Ezekiel was on the, in, the, in the scene. 
So it's not, it's not the David of the past that's there. It's, as it's often in Scripture, it's speaking of David's Lord, David's Son, and David's Lord. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be the one who becomes the master in the home. He will be the one who will become the master then in our place of work. He will be the one who will be the master in our church life. In all aspects of our life, he is the one who must have the preeminence. My son, he says, my daughter, he says, give me your heart. And that must be the first and foremost um, feature, characteristic of this changed society through the preaching of this gospel of sovereign grace. Another feature must be, and some very important one, cooperation in the cooperation right over the right through the spectrum of our church life where there is a, there, there is necessary there was there, there, there is a necessity indeed of denominations to an extent but there is not a necessity for denominationalism there's a distinction to be made and uh, where core doctrines of scripture are adhered to. There is room, not for integration maybe, but for cooperation is a necessary feature and must always be a feature of changed life in the church and nation. Notice how there is reference to here in Israel, the two sticks. The picture there is of the, the divided nation of Israel. Ephraim on the one side, Judah on the other. The two kingdoms that resulted from the division after the time of Solomon. Well, there's going to be, come the time. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know anyone who does about the lost tribes of, 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 of Ephraim, how they're going to come together. But the Lord knows, and they're going to be brought together in one. And that is a picture of what must be there in the church as far as it's possible to be brought together in the service of the Lord as one family. After all, we look forward to glory, do we? And... Um, There will be no divisions. We must keep our distinctives, but we must seek after cooperation. That must be a feature. And another feature is the heathen will take note, the ungodly 
We trust that many of them will be brought in, but those who have not will take note of the life of the difference in the life of the church. One thing they will say is see how they love one another. They will see something of the love of Christ lifted up in the witness of the people. And Christ being lifted up in their witness, he will be drawing from the heathen unto himself. He will be drawing through them to himself. But that will be taken note of. We can all remember a time in our own island when that respect was there for the professing church and for the Christ of the professing church. That seems to be going. But this will be a feature of the revival that the church will be taken note of by the unchurched. Notice one other feature that seems to me at least to stand out in this chapter. It's particularly referring to Israel, as I said at the beginning, although there's applications on a wider, wider, wider scene also. The need for prayer for Israel must be a major part of this evangelism, this God-centered evangelism, this sovereign grace evangelism. God has still a purpose for Israel. And we look forward to the day when they shall look unto him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. Repentance and contrition of their turning against him as they seek to lean their weight upon him as now as their Messiah. And the promise of Scripture is, whereas we understand it, that when they are brought back and grafted into their own olive tree, as it's put in Romans chapter 11, then they will be made instruments in God's hand to bring the gospel in power to the nations. And the promises of the, then of the casting away of them, and they are cast away people at the moment because of the rebellion. The casting away of them was the reconciling of the Gentiles, reconciling in the world. When they turned their back on Christ, the gospel went to the Gentiles. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. And the gospel has reached into Europe. And the gospel has reached into Lewis. But there's going to come the time when the gospel will not just be to the Gentiles, but to the, to the Jews themselves as they turn back unto him whom they have pierced. They mourn for him. They shall be made instruments then to bring the gospel in power to the nations. We look forward to that great day when they become missionaries to the Arab world, to the Buddhist world, and to all other isms that oppose Christianity meantime. They will be instruments in God's hand for worldwide evangelism. And that must be a feature, therefore, of our prayers as we look for that evangelism under God's hand that will bring blessing to the world.
that the valley of dry bones will become a valley. As we read in Isaiah 35, the wilderness shall rejoice and blossom as the rose, shall blossom abundantly. Nothing is impossible with the Lord that is in accordance with his mind and will. These bones can live under his sovereign guidance and will. Spread. Gracious and ever blessed one, we pray that thou would keep us from a spirit of pessimism. We so often speak of a day of small things. And it is a day of small things. But our God is not a small God. He is still mighty to save. He is sovereign, doing his will amidst the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of earth. None staying his hand and none being his counselor. And he has said, my glory I will not give to another. We pray that the day would be hastened when it would be seen that he is the one who is sovereign. That we would be with the psalmist saying, the Lord doth reign and clothe the sea. That we would be saying, the Lord is the Lord doth reign. Let the earth rejoice. There's no other reason, there's no other ground for rejoicing except in this glorious truth that he is the sovereign ruler and that he would glorify his own name and he will do so in such a way as to benefit those who deserve to be cast out. All for his own name's sake. It's in his own name that we make our prayer. We have no other plea. Have mercy upon us. In that name that is above every name. Amen.